The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading comes from Isaiah 6, verses 1 to 13. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Isaiah's commission from the Lord. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts. And turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Mary Louise. Uh, First, before I get into the sermon, just want to Thank Kevin Twitt uh, for leading us today in worship. Uh, he's the first of uh, quite a number of wonderful uh, lead worshipers that, that we've invited to come in and lead us in the next months, and uh, grateful also for his son Cooper and uh, their friend Michelle, uh, who joined us as well. And uh, Kevin is also a, a regular uh, here at Christ Pres Church and uh, also the campus minister of Reformed University Fellowship, which is one of the missional partners of our church as well. So lots of ties there and uh, just grateful for, um, grateful for their leadership. And they've got a great rendition of, uh, of our final uh, Advent song after the Lord's Supper that I encourage you to stay and belt it out uh, for as well. Um, so we, this is the fourth in our Advent series. And we've been looking at select passages from 
what you could call the gospel according to Isaiah. And these have been foreshadowing texts from before the time that Christ was born. And it was a season of waiting of, uh, for that first advent of Christ. And uh, these specific texts we've been looking at focus on the threefold, what, what theologians call the threefold offices of Christ. Christ as king, Christ as priest, and today Christ as prophet through the foreshadowing of Isaiah. So, so this is a text, and all of Isaiah is a book for weary people, people who are fatigued, people who are afraid and weary politically, relationally, personally, morally, and otherwise. And um, the words are used in this text that I, I think are, are, are metaphor for uh, a lot of what is characterizing the world today, foundations having been shaken. And the specific setting for Isaiah about the foundations being shaken uh, are both political and personal. Politically, it, it, it's the year that King Uzziah died. Now, Uzziah had been a, a, a beloved king with a long, prosperous, peaceful reign. And his death is symbolic not only of the end of Uzziah, but the end of the reign that he brought. What's happening next is uh, the Assyrian power, uh, his superpower, is going to invade Israel and take them into captivity. And the years of prosperity and the years of peace in, in Israel's lifetime are now over. And what's going to replace those years is, uh, is uh, something not unlike the experience of the Great Depression, except violence everywhere all the time. So it was a, a devastation politically, nationally, but there's also this promise that God makes to Isaiah, and it's essentially this. Isaiah was kind of like a Bell Mead kid, um, you know, born into uh, a lot of opportunity and born with great skill, as we can see from his gift with words, uh, from you know, his poetic prowess, etc. He had the pedigree, he had the networks, and everything else. And now what God is doing is he's coming in and he's saying to Isaiah, that's all over. In the same way that there's going to be devastation for the nation of Israel, there's going to be devastation for you. The rest of your life is going to be essentially professional and relational failure as the world sees it. But I'm going to prosper you in that in the way that the world doesn't understand. And what's really surprising is, in spite of all of this rough news, the death of Uzziah, the end of a peaceful, prosperous reign, and, and really the end of, of Isaiah's flourishing, prosperous life, his greatest trauma has nothing to do with any of these things. His greatest trauma comes from an encounter with God. That brings trauma to him before it brings to him a relief that no amount of pedigree, privilege, money, influence, skill sets could ever bring. This was a similar experience for Joseph and Mary. You know, when they were told that Mary was going to be the bearer of God's child, the Theotokos, it wasn't their youthfulness and unpreparedness because of that. It wasn't their poverty. 
It wasn't uh, the suspicion that their family members and the entire community was going to have about them because she, a young teenage girl, was pregnant, unmarried. You know, people can figure things out like that, right? Like, who's going to believe, well, I'm the one unique person in the history of the universe who's pregnant without the normal process? And their greatest trauma didn't come from the fact that an anti-Semitic king was out to destroy all of the uh, young boys in Israel because of rumors that the Messiah had been born. Their greatest trauma was their encounter with the king in the cradle, who's the same God as Isaiah encounters. So this is the reality of Advent, right? Like in America, in our part of the world, in the prosperous West, it, it, it's, it's kind of a positive season, right? Uh, it's, there's a lot of levity to it. There's a lot of you know, weight gain from sweets and feasting and, and parties and, and positive music in the air. But the season of Advent is actually, a, a, you know, in, in its original form, actually a lot like the season of Lent. It's a season of grief. It's a season of mourning. It's a season of, of disorientation, a season in which kings like Uzziah are dead. And promises of difficulty uh, in the life that you've been given lie ahead. And yet that is where the things that are most wonderful tend to show up in God's economy. In the most disorienting, even terrifying circumstances, that's where the light of hope, that's where the ray of hope breaks in. And so to communicate that, we've got three points today. From Isaiah, the trauma of meeting God, the rebuilding power of grace, and then finally the trauma of being God. So, so we'll start with the trauma of meeting God. If you've ever seen Charlie Brown Christmas, um, one of my favorite uh, you know, instrumental records, Vince Giraldi and those wonderful piano pieces from, from Charlie Brown Christmas. But if you've ever seen the, the cartoon, you may remember the scene where Linus is, is reading about the birth of Christ from Luke chapter 2 in the King James Version. And he reads these words. The angel of the Lord came upon the shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. They were so afraid that it felt sore. So afraid that, that it felt like there was a bruise on their hearts. They were sore afraid. And when the angel appears to Mary and Zechariah and others, they have a similar reaction as the shepherds did because they're, they're awakened to the reality and the gravity and the grandeur of the God who they're dealing with. He's not some sweet, sappy, cozy, you know, saccharine-like, you know, Diet Coke of a God. You know, it, 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 it's like uh, Mr. Beaver, Mrs. Beaver, I can't remember who it was in, in the Narnia books, when, when, when one of the children asks, is, is Aslan safe? And the, the answer is, of course he isn't safe. Who said anything about safe? But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's not safe, but he's good. And Isaiah paints this picture just as the original nativity painted the same picture. Uzziah is a temporary king who is dwarfed in Isaiah's presence by the cosmic king. And, and, and when Isaiah sees this vision of the Lord with his own eyes, the, the first thing he does is he cries, woe. It's a cry of grief. Woe is me, for I'm ruined. 
I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Why so traumatic? You know, there's, there's smoke that shows up in the temple, and there were none of those smoke machines, right? Like, this was like smoke that came from the fire of God. Smoke. The foundations are shaking. It's like there's an earthquake going on, but it's, it's not because of tectonic plates under the earth. It's because of the presence of the Lord. Things are shaking and quaking. And then it says the seraphs, the angels, they're covering their faces. Now, when do we cover our faces? We cover our faces when we feel exposed, when we feel ashamed, when we feel found out. You know, the, the French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre uh, in the chapter called The Look in, in his book Being and Nothingness, uh, he talks about how from his point of view, hell… The, the, the experience of hell is simply the same experience as being looked at from some, somebody, by somebody else. Somebody looking at you and not breaking the gaze, not breaking eye contact. According to Sartre, that is hell. I think we all know what that means, right? Like there's this, this sense of being exposed, this sense of, of being on the verge of being humiliated when somebody's staring at us. What's remarkable here, though, about the angels who are covering their, their faces they have no shame. They have no moral defects. They are morally perfect creatures. And yet they are also sore afraid, just like the shepherds and everyone else when they see the Lord. And then the only thing they can think of is, is to, to pick his supreme attribute, his holiness, and repeat it three times. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, is the Lord Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. Three times holy. That's the only attribute of God that is repeated consecutively three times in the Bible. And, and His holiness has to do with His superlativeness in all things and over all things. And then there's Isaiah the prophet. When he sees the Lord, the first thing he does is he points to his lips and identifies his lips as a, as a source of shame and as a source of of contamination. I am a man of unclean lips, he says. Now, the irony here is his lips are the finest part of him. His lips are the most professionally developed part of him. His lips, in in a sense, are the thing, are are what have made him famous and and given him a name in the world and, and in his community and among his people. You know, for a prophet, the lips are are the top line on your resume. You're a wordsmith. Words are to a prophet, the lips are to a prophet as, uh, you know, net worth and accumulated assets are to a billionaire, or like the mind is to a scholar, or like good looks are to a supermodel. It's the thing that validates you. It's the thing that gives you your worth and your good name. It's the thing that causes people to, to, to gossip in good ways about you at parties or bad ways about you because they envy you. It's the thing that validates you. And it's that thing that is the number one primary 
target. And, you know, the point here is this. It's not just the foundations of the temple that are being shaken. It's also the foundation of every identity that any of us would seek to build outside of Christ. It will be shaken the moment you understand for the first time who this God is who's created you, who this God is, you know, of whom the fullness of the earth is filled with His glory. If you've ever seen the show This Is Us, that, you know, Patty and I, we didn't miss any episodes. We're still grieving on some level that there are no more episodes because it's done. But there's there's this scene, and you know, you Music City people will, will appreciate this. So she is, you know, the you know Rebecca, who's played by Mandy Moore, is a local musician who's had some local success in the Pittsburgh area, you know, with her music and the different you know performing venues and such. And so she decides to send a demo of some of her music to uh, some Los Angeles music executives in hopes that she will be discovered. And so she sends it on, and then she drives all the way across the country to visit with these Los Angeles music executives, and they listen to her demo, and, um, and you know, they kind of give her a blank stare when they're meeting with her afterwards, and she's just looking at them like, you know, what do you think? And, and so she finally asks, you know, what, what, what do you think? And, am I good? Am I good? And, of course, she's been told all of her life, yes, you are good. You're like one of the best bar singers in Pittsburgh. Of course you're good. And, and so they say to her, well, um, where are you from? And, and she says, well, I'm from Pittsburgh. And they say, well, you're Pittsburgh good, which was not a compliment uh, Pittsburgh is known for steel, not for music. Pittsburgh is known for football and blizzards, not music. You're Pittsburgh good. Have a nice 3,000-mile drive home. And, you know, the, the same thing happens in our city, right? Like, like you know, people will come in my office, they'll see my guitar, and, and, and they'll be like, oh, you play guitar? And I'm like... Yeah, kind of. And, and they're like, yeah, me too, but I never would dare bring it out and start playing it in this city, right? Because I'm Pittsburgh good on the guitar. You know, freshmen enter Vanderbilt every single year. This, this swarm of Vanderbilt, this, this swarm of, of, of high school you know, valedictorians and salutatorians who suddenly discover in the not-too-distant future that they are suddenly in the bottom half of their class, half of them. It's all relative. It's all by comparison. You know, these holy angels and this, this, this unassailable prophet are, are suddenly sore afraid because they understand what it means to stand next to holiness. You know, Isaiah says that even our most righteous deeds in comparison with the Lord are, are as if they are filthy rags. You know, this is, this is a key sign that you've had an encounter with God. The foundations of your life have been shaken. You know, Job, who's identified by God himself as one of the most righteous people in the world, says this after he sees a glimpse of the Lord. My eyes have seen you and I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. And then there's a man in the book of Judges named Manoah, and he and his wife get a, a very brief glimpse of, of the glory of God, and, and he looks at his wife and says, essentially, we need to get our affairs together because we're going to die. We've seen the Lord. Peter has the same experience. All that he sees is, is Jesus teaching truth from a boat, 
And it's just that experience that, that leads Peter to look back at Jesus and say, depart from me, Lord. I, I'm a sinful man. I, I can't abide your presence. That's the effect. Even on the good people. Sore afraid. And so the takeaway here, at least for this first part, is if, if you're looking for a religion to cushion your self-esteem, Christianity is not it. And we may say, well, what, what about the gospel and what about grace? Well, good news, that's the next point. But before we get there, remember what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 1.16 about the gospel. It's the power of God. And the, the Greek word there is dynamis, the dynamite of God for salvation. What does dynamite do? Dynamite exists in order to annihilate lesser foundations so lesser foundations will not annihilate us. Annihilate to set the stage for rebuilding. That's what dynamite does. That's what the gospel does. Isaiah's particular vulnerability is his potential to lean on his exceptional networks, his exceptional upbringing, his exceptional privilege, and his exceptional gift package and education to get him by in this world and to be his power. But what this text is telling us is that true power, if you want to be a powerful person, then your heart has to get to the place where you become more and more modest about yourself and more and more boastful about God. And, and, and somebody like Isaiah, with all of his gifts, when you can channel modesty about yourself and boastfulness about the Lord, with his gift for words and with his influence and his network, you know, he becomes the best kind of dangerous. But, but, but if you reverse it and you're modest about God and boastful about yourself, you become useless, especially the more gifted you are, you become useless. Especially the bigger platform you become, you become more useless for the world if you are modest about God and boastful about yourself, but you reverse that and, and, and the, the, the trajectory reverses and it goes the other direction, in the direction of flourishing and, 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 and impact. And so God is, is leveling the ground with the dynamite of God to rebuild Isaiah which brings us next to the rebuilding power of grace. So as this prophet prepares to die, it says that an angel appears to him with a blazing coal, and he touches Isaiah's lips. He goes straight to the source of Isaiah's shame. That's what the gospel does. It, it goes straight for where you, know, you feel most ashamed about the things that you've done or about the things that have been done to you. The gospel goes straight to those places as a healing agent. And the healing agent, in this case, is the blazing coal, touches his lips with the fire of God. Now, Hebrews chapter 12, when it talks about the fire of God, it says that, that God himself is a consuming fire. And so you would think, you know, the, the, a blaze that comes from God touching your lips is going to cremate your lips, but the effect is the opposite. Instead of cremating his lips, the fire of God purifies them in the same way that, that melting you know, a precious metal, uh, you know, will we'll, we'll get rid of the impurities and then, and then when it hardens back, it is more solid and more pure and more radiant as, as a precious metal because it's been through the fire. 
And so this is a decontaminating fire that is touching the lips of this prophet. And another phrase that's, that's really significant is where it says that the train of God's robe fills the temple with glory. Now, another way to translate that word train is the hem of his robe, the hem of the Lord's garment. Now, there's a place in the New Testament where that same terminology is used, the hem of the Lord's garment. So, there's all these, this massive crowd of people bumping against Jesus, and he suddenly feels the power go out from him, and he asks his disciples, who touched me? And the disciples are, are like, everyone's touching you. Like, like, you can't not be touched by everyone here because the crowd is so dense. It's like a, you know, like a subway in, in Tokyo. Like, like just, have you ever seen those videos where, where people just, you know, cram into the subway? It's like that. And they're like, what, what do you mean? Somebody uniquely touched me because I felt a power go out of me. And there's this woman on the ground, and she's like, sir, you know, it was I. And it's this woman who's had a, ble- a, a, a bleeding, a chronic bleeding condition, spent all of her money, all of her resources on the best medical care, and, and nothing was working. And so it's kind of a last ditch, right? A lot like us, right? We, 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 we go to Jesus for the last ditch effort once we've exhausted all of our other resources to get well. And, 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 and so she does the same, and she she reaches out thinking that if I could only touch him, maybe something magical will happen. And she touches the hem of his garment. And the power goes out of Jesus and into her, and she's suddenly healed of her disease. The hem of God's garment, the train of God's robe, while on the one hand it feels traumatic, on the other hand it's the only place to get healed. You know, I love how the Bible is filled with honest confession where defenses are brought down by the holiness of God and by the grandeur of who God is. You know, the greatest saints are so honest. You know, Isaiah about his unclean lips. Jonah, who, who writes about, you know, himself as a, an entitled, caustic, you know, xenophobic, um, you know, racist against the Ninevites, resentful of grace toward other people. Or David, who gives us Psalm 51, which is his open, public, to the whole wide world confession about his own committing of assault and murder on his neighbor's wife and and then on his neighbor to cover it up. Paul, who talks in Romans 7 about about his internal battle with coveting, or, or in 1 Timothy 2, about how he'd been a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. You know, James, the half-brother of Jesus in James chapter 5, says if we're open about our sin, if we confess our sins to each other, we will be healed. There's, there's healing uh, just by the sheer act of verbalizing the very worst things about ourselves. You know, Doc Shepard, who's you know, a famous actor, um, also got this podcast where he talks very openly about uh, his addiction, and in particular his experience with alcoholism and recovery and such. And in one of those episodes, he's talking to a, a fellow, you know, you know friend on, on the, the journey of recovery, and, and the subject of church comes up, and, and he's like, you know, I'm not really a church person except the church basement. 
says, you know, I'd probably spend more time in church sanctuaries if people behaved in church sanctuaries like they do in the church basement because the church basement is where the recovery groups meet. And where recovery groups meet, one person gets up and says, you know, I'm so-and-so and I'm I'm addicted to alcohol, or I'm addicted to porn, or I'm addicted to, you know, this substance or that substance. I'm addicted to outrage. You know, I'm addicted to, you know, narcissism, my own narcissism. I'm addicted. And then the whole room, you know, does the C.S. Lewis thing. Oh, you too? I thought I was the only one. And then when, when you're in community, and, and, and you're putting all your junk in the middle of the room together in community, healing happens even without Christ, you guys. Even without the gospel, people get healed of their addictions better than people with the gospel who won't talk about their sin and won't talk about their contamination because they're so concerned with putting on their stupid Sunday best. You know, giving the appearance like you're all put together but dying inside because you're not exhaling your crud to anyone. And the Lord says, I have given you a history of examples of people who behave like the church basement. And the moment the church basement dynamics are brought into church sanctuaries and then out in the city, that's when revival and renewal happen. But until then, until then, the Pharisee dynamic, we're always at risk of the Pharisee dynamic, of being more concerned about clean optics than, than, than clean hearts. Honest confession is always met with amazing grace. Listen to these words, these soul-gratifying, strengthening words. Your guilt is removed. Your sin is atoned for. Wait a minute, I'm, I'm off the hook. Well, yeah, you're off the hook because my prophet who is coming will also be my priest and will also be my king and he will bear the punishment that you deserve so that you will receive the reward that he alone deserves and the blessing that he alone deserves. And of course, Isaiah's response to this is, well, here am I, send me. And and the Lord's like, I haven't given you the job description yet. And Isaiah's like, I don't care. I, I will live the rest of my life, you know, you know, running a city, living in a luxurious mansion, or you know, on the edges of poverty, living in a box in Calcutta, whatever you want me to do. Because I, no matter what my life situation, I now have everything. Because the God of the universe has touched my dirty lips with fire, and, and it didn't have a cremating effect. Instead, it had a purifying effect. My guilt is removed. My sin is atoned for. What else do I need? And so here am I. Send me. Let the rest of my days be for your purposes and your use. You know, the only thing on earth that will get us unstuck from our paralysis is the applied grace of God. So I love this excerpt from, um, from a book called Gentle and Lowly, which I know a lot of you have read. And it, it really drives this point home. It says this, that God is rich in mercy means that your regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but homes in which divine mercy abides. It means the things about you that make you cringe most make God hug the hardest. 
It means His mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours. It's unrestrained, flood-like, sweeping, magnanimous. It means our haunting shame is not a problem for Him, but the very thing He loves most to work with. It means our sins do not cause His love to take a hit. Our sins cause His love instead to surge forward all the more. It means on that day when we stand before Him quietly, unhurriedly, we will weep with relief shocked at how impoverished a view of His mercy-rich heart we had. It's just an extended way of saying, and let this sink in, the filthiest things about you, the things that you are most ashamed of, things that have been done by you, things that have been, been done to you, the filthiest things that you can imagine about yourself, stir Jesus' love and longing for you the most. An oncologist is a lot more attracted to a cancer patient than she is to somebody without cancer. You know why? Because an an oncologist is motivated by her skill and ability and drive to heal and to push back the darkness that is cancer. Jesus, likewise, is motivated by self-aware sinners, by self-aware carriers of shame. He's motivated like a physician. And of course, this triggers Isaiah's Godward life, verses 9 and following. You know, the Lord promises you for the rest of your life, you're going to preach to people who won't listen. You'll have no friends. They will be unimpressed with your message, ambivalent toward your God, hostile toward you. You'll be despised and rejected. People will esteem you not. But he doesn't walk it back. This whole, here am I, send me. He doesn't waver even after hearing the job description. This is one of the signs that the grace of God has gotten its grip on you. You have stopped negotiating with God. You don't, you don't put caveats and conditions on your worship, on your willingness to serve Him. No more caveats, no more conditions, because you know that He's already given you the very thing that your heart most needs. And the way that He, what He had to go through in order to be able to give it to you was trauma. Which brings us finally to the trauma of being God. Why did Jesus come? You know, Jesus came to be the, the, the blazing coal from the altar. He was the one who was actually cremated by the fire of God so that we would be preserved and purified by the fire of God. He came to be our atoning sacrifice. That was the whole sermon last year. He also came to be a professional failure in the eyes of the world. His life ended dead on a trash heap in his early 30s. He had, before then, he had no home. He had no money. He didn't have a lot of followers. And the followers that he did have were not very impressive, were not very networked people. He was a dishonored prophet, despised and rejected by men, the object of scorn. On the cross, his foundations were shaken. You know, the Gospels tell us an earthquake happened as Jesus cried out to God from the cross. And he, he cried down, called down woes upon himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we would never be forsaken. Are we seeing the parallels here? Are we seeing the foreshadowing from Isaiah to Jesus? He's the king who died. You know, uh, uh, 
Uzziah's death marked the end of Israel's prosperity and flourishing. Jesus' death marked the beginning of his people's prosperity and flourishing. Chapter 9 vividly portrays this. Three chapters later, he will reign, this coming Messiah, on David's throne and of the increase of his government. Of the ever-ascending momentum of his reign and rule, there will be no end, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Shalom, Prince of Peace. And the will of the Lord will accomplish this. Jesus is the messenger of heaven who touches our lips, not with a fiery coal, but with bread and a cup, which is what we get to do now. The bread and the cup are in front of us, not to cremate our lips, but to purify us through and through. And so let's pray as we prepare to approach the table of grace. Heavenly Father, thank you for this truth that that feels so foreign to us because, because it's just not us that, that when shame is in the room, when guilt and regret are in the room, you know, our impulse is to run the other way. And so it just feels very unnatural, Lord, to accept that shame and guilt and regret cause you to run in our direction, not in the other way. They're the very things that motivate you. And so, Father, we, we invite you We ask you, we beg you to run toward us, which we know you are because the Psalms promise that your goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. But Lord, we want the awareness of how you follow us, the awareness of how you move toward us, and you hug the hardest at our our places of deepest shame and sorrow. We need the awareness so that we will also in turn run toward you. Lord, nourish our hearts, nourish our bodies, Nourish our wills as we receive the nourishment of the bread and the cup, the body and the blood of Christ given for us, that we may, like Isaiah, stop with the caveats, stop with the conditions, stop with the negotiations, and simply say, here am I, send me, wherever that may take us, Lord. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.